We're going to continue in our series in 1 Thessalonians. And today we'll be in chapter 5 and verse 26. Very short verse. In fact, again, the title of our message is the entire passage we'll be looking at. And that is, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We find that, as I said, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 26. I'll just read it again. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our eyes today, again, to see wonderful things in your word. And teach us, Lord, not only what this passage is intended to deliver, but also to help us understand how all passages of your word are designed by you to deliver truth that changes our lives. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory and we give you all the praise and we thank you for the riches of your word. And we ask these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in review, briefly, of last week's message, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Brethren, pray for us. We saw that when we believe as we should, we will pray as we should. We will pray fervently, like a lawyer making his case in court, striving first to ascertain the will of God, and then asking God to do what we believe to be his will, praying according to his will. We also saw that though we do ask and should ask for relief from our own suffering and, from the, suf- and the suffering of others as well, that we should be open to the possibility that our suffering is part of the way in which God has chosen to as Paul puts it, adorn the gospel by, again, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in our own life before a watching world. That there are times in which God knows that we will be so grateful that he allowed us to continue in that difficult situation because of the greater weight of glory that would then be revealed in us and by our example through us to a world that is desperately in need of the truth of the gospel. And lastly, we saw how our prayers for ourselves and for one another should make the phrase, as our Lord said, if it be your will, not my will, but thy will be done. If it be your will. So many times that is spoken as an expression of a lack of faith in God ever doing anything that we ask him to do. And so it's a kind of an escape hatch that we don't have to think about the fact that uh, things are not happening. But rather for us to be able to make that statement, Lord, if it be your will, to express not a lack of faith, but rather a deeper, more confident, more mature faith, that in our suffering, God is accomplishing his will in us and in the lives of others around us who are watching us as we go through that difficulty. And so, as the, uh, 
as the song and the poem, uh, the tapestry puts it, you know, we are looking at the bottom side of the tapestry, the tangled threads. We cannot see the pattern that God sees working on that tapestry from above. But someday we will get to see the top. We'll get to see it from that other side and see how the gold threads and the dark black threads all interacted with one another to create the beautiful scene that is our lives and the story of our lives that we take with us into eternity. So that's our review from last week. Now, today we begin with almost the same statement. When we believe as we should, the truth revealed by God to us in his Bible, in his word, open affection for one another in Christ becomes another expression of the obedience of faith. So that when we believe as we should, we will show affection as we should. And we'll be able to overcome all the obstacles to that affection being displayed. Now, there are many passages in God's word in which this idea of the holy kiss is expressed. First in Romans 16 and verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then in our passage here today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And then finally we have the Apostle Peter chiming in in chapter 5 and verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, we can see here that this command is not just found in one obscure passage. Even if it were, it would still be the Word of God. Okay? We only have 1 John 3.16, and yet it gets the job done. Right? And so this command is repeatedly offered in the closing passages of these various letters, these epistles, and it is commanded by both the apostles Paul and Peter. So we'd better take it seriously, okay? Now I do have a little bit of personal experience with this doctrine. Uh, in the church that I pastored in Gresham, uh, a man there, in fact he is my, my brother-in-law, uh, or not my brother in what, what is it when you're the father of my son's wife? What does that make you? Yeah, anyway, his name is Ken Paul. And if Ken is listening to this, Ken, I just want to honor you as I tell our story. Ken had a, a habit of, as, we would, as I would walk in down through the center aisle at the church there where we were gathering in Gresham, he would often turn to me and kiss me on the cheek and then laugh as he only Ken Paul can laugh and keep on going. Well, one day I thought that I would beat him to the punch. Uh, I decided I am going to kiss him before he kisses me. And so I turned suddenly to kiss him on the cheek. At the same time, he turned suddenly to kiss me on the cheek, and we locked lips. And others in the church saw this. 
And we're doing the, the man thing of, you know, uh, I don't kiss guys on the lips. And so that became our, uh, do you remember the time when story uh, that we share every time we get together? And so I do have a bit of personal experience with this important doctrine. But the, the idea of the holy kiss represents something very important. And we're going to use this opportunity not only to unpack this passage and this doctrine, but also to address the issues that relate to this doctrine and how we, how we embrace or explain away or otherwise sweep under the carpet things that make us uncomfortable in, the, in God's word. And so I, I hope that in doing so, I, I don't mean to impose any sense of legal requirement here, but rather to give us the liberty that we have under the Lordship of Christ to no longer be bound by the expectations of the larger worldly culture around us, or even the culture of the church as it has developed over the centuries, but rather to be free in Christ to walk in the obedience of faith in what this passage is intended to accomplish in our lives. Now, the holy kiss, that phrase, the holy kiss, is found primarily in Christian scriptures. The specific term holy kiss, as it's found in the biblical text, is not found in secular sources that we're aware of. However, kissing is found. Greeting one another with a kiss is found in ancient literature around the same time. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman statesman in the first century uh, AD, in his epistles, uh, 724 to be specific, wrote, it is hardly possible for us to salute or kiss one another with all this unkindness between us. So the expectation was that kissing one another in greeting was a a common thing, and now it was difficult because of the unkindness that had been expressed between him and the person he was addressing in his letter. Plutarch, uh, a Greek historian in the first and second century, his life kind of overlapped the last part and the first part of those two centuries, in his parallel lives, life of Artaxerxes, he wrote, those who were of noble birth, on the other hand, would go up to one another and after saluting, embrace and kiss each other. So here again, we find the idea of kissing one another as a means of greeting between men uh, was not uncommon. So what's the difference? What is a holy kiss as opposed to simply a kiss? Well, a holy kiss is a kiss that has no other intent than to express affection toward another in a morally pure and upright way. A holy kiss is the kind of kiss that you would give to your own father or mother, to your grandparents, to your own child. This, uh, in, a, uh, in a normal context, would be considered a holy and appropriate expression of affection. However, in a fallen world, what should be wholesome family and church affection can be defiled by immoral motives. We saw this in the early days in the Jesus movement, 
when we had a lot of young men who came to Christ very quickly. They were not uh, discipled as of yet, and, and therefore they were just taking a passage of scripture, and when they saw greet one another with a holy kiss, they just began to kiss everybody. And it was not always appropriate. Uh, they would hug everybody, and it was not always appropriate. And so it was necessary to kind of dampen that down and say, uh, hey guys, this is not entirely pure in motive. Because these young men had been saved out of the world, and they were used to um, immorality, and they began to use this passage as a, as a cloak of maliciousness, a cloak of, of, of uh, immorality, and it had to just be addressed. Okay? Now, there wasn't an intention to shut down the entire thing. Those who were greeting one another in an appropriately you know, way, uh, that was fine. It's just these were, these were young guys, right? And, uh, and sometimes some young ladies as well. So that is why Paul qualifies this kiss with the word holy. It's a holy kiss. It's not just a secular kiss. It's a holy kiss. And remember, the word holy means set apart for a special purpose. It is a kiss that is set apart for the special purpose of expressing affection, of love toward one another in a way that is observable. You know, if this was was something that could be done without anyone noticing, it wouldn't be such a big deal, but it is intended to be noticeable. It is a display of affection. We used to call that uh, PDAs, right? Before there was a, a, a palm top or, or what are our palm pilots and so on, PDAs. We had our PDAs as kids. They were public displays of affection and not always appropriate, right? Let's just say that. Now, despite the potential for abuse, open expressions of authentic, loving affection should be part of Christian culture. Okay? There should be a way for us to express authentic, loving affection as a part of the culture of the church. And so... This holy kiss that Paul and Peter are commanding, uh, we have to sort out the question of, is this a command to kiss? Or is it simply a command to show affection? There are many on both sides of this question, and uh, I want to try to address it in a way that is, is fair to both points of view. So the first option is, number one, that God is commanding all Christians to create a culture where openly expressed affection is the norm by everyone, greeting one another with open affection, not necessarily as a kiss. In this particular case, an actual kiss is not required, Uh, but greeting one another with open affection would be required okay so it could be a hug it could be a warm handshake it could be a big smile and a hand on the shoulder and a pat on the back it could be all kinds of things that express openly express affection love toward one another that's one way to see this 
these passages and say, okay, it doesn't have to be a kiss. And if culturally kissing one another is uh, awkward, uh, weird, you know, things like that, then we can bypass that. We can dodge that bullet. Okay. Now, the other way to see it is that God is commanding all Christians to create a distinct culture. Notice I added the word distinct culture. Where openly expressed affection is the norm by specifically greeting one another with a holy kiss. And in this case, obedience would require actual kissing. So which is it? Where have we been confronted with this kind of choice before? You know, there is one kind of big area of the Christian life in which we are confronted with something that we have to do, but we don't necessarily agree on how we do it. So let's take a look. Choosing a mode of greeting is like choosing a mode of baptism. Baptism itself is commanded everywhere in the New Testament. The mode of baptism has been debated from the beginning, very early on in church history. The total immersion seems to be what was initially practiced. Uh, They were in the river, right? And uh, Jesus came up out of the river. Total immersion seems to be the initial mode of baptism. Sprinkling was eventually adopted by most churches. Uh, That was partly due to infant baptism. We didn't want to dunk a baby. And so we would simply sprinkle the baby. And then it pretty soon says, well, if you can sprinkle the baby, well, why don't you sprinkle me too? Because that would save a lot of water. We wouldn't have to have nearly the same size baptismal. And so over time, immersion disappeared and sprinkling took its place until the Reformation era, era when total immersion was restored by the Anabaptists and later by the Baptists. So the command to be baptized must be obeyed. But the mode of baptism is something that can be debated and discussed. And and we have certain liberty from one church and one denomination to another to decide how we believe to be most pleasing to God. Now, just to tip you off, I'm a Baptist. Okay, I'm a total immersion Baptist. In fact, I think it would not be... Uh, I think we should hold people down for three days, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, do it really biblically, right? Very small denomination, by the way, uh, when you do that. So how to greet one another is a matter of liberty under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Greeting itself is commanded everywhere in the New Testament. The mode of greeting has been debated from the beginning. Greeting with a holy kiss seems to be what was practiced initially. Just showing affection was eventually adopted by most churches until the Reformation era, when greeting with a holy kiss was restored by various reform movements. And the command to greet one another with affection must be obeyed. So you see the correlation here between these two doctrines. So we can come to the question of what is the benefit of greeting one another with a holy kiss as opposed to simply uh, showing some form of affection. Now many Bible scholars, as you're going to see, 
and commentators have addressed this question, and their answers are remarkably consistent. I want you to notice the consistency as we go through these, and I also want you to notice the progression as we go through these quotes. So as we look at some of their answers, I want you to notice that there is a moving away from a literal kiss to merely an open display of affection. And so the question in my mind is whether or not this is actually progress. But it is a real progression in church history. So let's take a look first at St. Augustine or Augustine. Augustine of Hippo, he's writing in the 4th century. He is a major theologian, not just to the Catholic Church, but to all the churches. He's a man respected, regarded as a great man of God. He writes, The holy kiss represents the bond of peace and love that should exist among believers. It is a visible expression of the spiritual unity they share in Christ and a reminder of the commandment to love one another as Christ loved us. Okay? Now you'll note here that Augustine is speaking in the present tense. The holy kiss was still in practice 400 years later, not just in the first century. Now we skip forward to the Reformation period, and we have a quote from John Calvin. And John Calvin, you, knew, I, you would normally think of him as being a kind of a stiff guy, you know? You can't kind of imagine him being big on come in for a hug kind of a thing. But uh, here's what he had to say. The holy kiss is a, sign, is a sign of mutual love and affection, reminding believers of their common faith and shared identity in Christ. It serves as a tangible expression of the love that should characterize the relationships within the Christian community. Now you notice that Calvin is also speaking in the present tense. He's saying this is what the holy kiss is, not what the holy kiss was. So the holy kiss was still being practiced 1,500 years later another 1,100 years after Augustine, it's still present tense. This is what the holy kiss is. Now, when we come to Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry is commenting on 1 Corinthians 16, 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. He's a 17th century biblical commentator, very highly respected, and he writes, the holy kiss was a symbol of Christian love and goodwill. It signified the warmth of affection and genuine fellowship among believers. This practice emphasized the importance of unity within the church. So here we see Henry is speaking of the holy kiss in the past tense. Why would such an obviously good thing, he describes it as a very good thing, But he is acknowledging that it has faded from their personal experience. It's what was done. Now, John Gill, another great commentator, commentating on Romans 16, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. He's an 18th century theologian, and he writes, the holy kiss was a token of mutual love and affection among Christians. 
It was a customary form of greeting in the early Christian community, demonstrating the unity and fellowship they shared in Christ. Again, acknowledging the value, acknowledging the benefit, and yet speaking of it in the past tense. Adam Clark, another highly respected commenter on the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. He is a 19th century theologian now. And he writes, the holy kiss was an expression, was an expression of Christian love, unity, and reconciliation. It was a tangible way to show affection and to strengthen the bonds of fellowship within the church. The apostle Paul encouraged this practice to promote harmony among believers. Paul does not encourage it. He commands it. Do you see what's happening here? We're we're figuring out how to sidestep this because it's awkward. These are men writing, you know, in a, a more modern era, wanting to avoid anything that might seem embarrassing, might interfere with the ability to reach the, the world around us, not wanting to appear to be, you know, extremists. But Paul doesn't say, I encourage you to do this. He says, do it. Albert Barnes writing now in the 19th century, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26. He writes, the holy kiss was a customary form of greeting among early Christians, symbolizing the affection and love they had for one another. It was a way to express unity and to remind believers of their shared identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. So now, Barnes seems to be speaking of love itself in the past tense. They used to love one another. (laughs) And so they used to kiss one another. But what has changed? Have we Christians lost our saltiness? Have we allowed ourselves to be influenced by the expectations of the world around us? and basically bailed on our ability to stand out and shine as a light in the midst of the darkness. Charles Spurgeon, one of my personal dead heroes, he is commenting on 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 14 on greeting one another with a kiss of love. Again, a 19th century prince of preachers, and he's earned that title. But he writes, the kiss of love mentioned here represents the warmth and tenderness of Christian fellowship. It is a gesture of genuine affection and goodwill, reflecting the love that believers should have for one another. This practice served as a reminder of the love and grace they had received from God. Until he used that word served, I thought maybe we were seeing a restoration of the present tense. But no, he also uh, sees this as something that they used to do. 
So why do we no longer greet one another in this way? I think a, a clue is found in some of the more modern commentators. For instance, take a look here at John MacArthur and what he has to say. He says, the holy kiss in the New Testament was a cultural expression of love and respect. It's a cultural expression of love and respect. While the specific practice may not be common today, the underlying principle remains relevant. Believers should greet one another with genuine love, affection, and unity, fostering an atmosphere of Christ-centered fellowship. And so here we find the phrase cultural expression. And so the holy kiss is seen as just being a part of their culture, like wearing robes and sandals. And so, of course, you know, we don't wear robes and sandals today, and we don't have any moral obligation to wear robes and sandals today, unless the apostles said, wear robes and sandals. That would be, that would be difficult to, to, to disregard, right? If Paul and, and Peter had said, hey, all you, wear robes and sandals, what would we do? We'd probably have a whole industry of Christian um, attire. <laughs> You'd have to go to the Christian clothing store, right? Because it says, wear robes and sandals. We're going to do it. Whatever happened to Christians creating an alternative culture that pleases God? Now, I, I know that, you know, I'm coming out of my Jesus movement Jesus freak, you know, hippie lifestyle. And it wasn't hard for us to be counterculture. I mean, that was like, I was, that was our calling card. That was, that was our badge of honor. I'm counterculture. But the counterculture that we were countering had to do with the artificiality of the corporate world. The, the life our parents had drifted into after World War II. You know, dad going off to work in the office or the factory. Mom staying home with a mop in her hand and a no-wax floor, surrounded by appliances. Being lonely. Taking drugs. And so we, we looked at that and said, we don't want that. We, we want a different culture. We want something, we want to get back to earth. We want to move on to a commune. We want to dress in wild colors. We want to let our hair grow out. We want to experiment, with not, not with uh, just mood-altering drugs, but with conscious-raising drugs. And it was all foolish. It was, it was, you know, it was our foolish, lost attempt to make the world a better place by totally disregarding everything our parents had ever taught us. And it didn't work out well. A lot of people hurt. A lot of kids were abused. A lot of people died from hard drugs. A lot of people's minds were destroyed and ruined forever by hallucinogenic drugs. A lot of children were born without loving parents. A lot of abortions took place. So this, that's the counterculture there in the, in the 60s and 70s. 
But coming into the church, coming to Christ, I, I do have a, a, what do they call it, a predilection? Del, del, how do you say that? Predilection of being counterculture. But I want it to be a godly counterculture. I want it to be a pushing back against a sinful and foolish culture. And so I think that we, we need to stop and ask ourselves, how much are we willing to stand out in the world and be viewed as a counterculture? I have news for you. If you just refuse to get a tattoo, you're going to eventually stand out. You're going to start to look like you're Amish after a while because everybody else is totally covered, right? Now, I realize there, there are good and, and useful ways to use a tattoo. I've had friends who've who use tattoos to evangelize, and I'm not discouraging that. But I am saying that as the culture changes, as people become more and more given over to these trends, whether it's uh, uh, the, the jewelry and the, and the uh, uh, piercings or the tattoos or the, you know, the levels of immodesty that you know, are, are so rampant or or even sometimes now you've got people who are trying to look like different uh, species of animal, you know, intentionally trying to become more animalistic. It's happening. So you can't avoid being counterculture unless you just go along with the culture. So my question is, at what point do we take this opportunity to stand out and to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness and say, no, I'm going to follow Ken Paul. I'm going to kiss the guy. <laughs> Just don't kiss me on the lips, please. Another commentator that I respect, Warren Wearsby, he writes, the holy kiss was a cultural form of greeting in biblical times. Its purpose was to demonstrate Christian love and acceptance. In our contemporary context, it reminds us to greet one another with warmth, respect, and genuine affection, reflecting the unity we have in Christ. So we're all acknowledging, everybody's acknowledging the benefits, the goodness of this original doctrine. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's just that it is, it is faded from our experience. And here again, we see the phrase cultural form, relegating this to a cultural thing rather than a commandment of God. If the holy kiss is just part of a first century culture, how is it then that it's still being practiced, or seems to be so, by Augustine and Calvin? They didn't see this as something that was past tense. They saw it as something actively being done in their day. So the question is, what mode of greeting best pleases God? That's what we should be asking ourselves. And this is an issue of the obedience of our faith. I'm not here to tell you you have to greet one another with a holy kiss. But I am saying you are to walk in the obedience of faith in what you believe to be most pleasing to God, even if that results in others thinking that you have become weird. Which approach is most likely to create the alternative Christian culture of love that God intends? Now we have to be careful here because the meaning of this is lost if it becomes a ritualistic 
approach. In the 14th century, the Holy Kiss became a ritual act in the church's liturgy. And in so doing, it lost its genuine meaning. It just became something people did, and they didn't even know why they were doing it. They just did it because it was part of the liturgy. When any practice becomes a superficial or obligatory act, the essence of its meaning becomes just another hollow expression of artificial courtesy, like tipping your hat, shaking a hand when you meet people. It may or may not express any real affection. And that's, I believe, why, why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, just prior to the passage we saw earlier, in verse 9, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And then he says, abhor what is evil. I wonder, does he have in mind that an ungenuine expression of love is evil? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. What is good? A genuine expression of love. And then he writes, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so we have here a clear uh, mandate to get this right. Just as a handshake can become perfunctory, so can a holy kiss. So, how will everyone know? In John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, by this love, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Somehow, there is an expression of love for one another that allows all to know that we are his disciples. It's not just a kiss. The kiss is just an expression of that love, normally in a greeting or in a, in a departure. But the way that we show up for one another in all kinds of ways, as we see in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, Serving the Lord. You're doing this for the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. That's your fellow believers. Given to hospitality. That's a no holds back uh, hospitality. Given to hospitality. Now, this love is to be on display in such a way that all will know that you are Christ's disciples. And so the obedience of faith in the goodness and the wisdom of God is going to bring us to some kind of a settled position as to whether or not we're going to participate in what 
Paul and Peter have commanded here, whether it's going to be a part of our repertoire, whether it's going to be a part of our toolkit for expressing love in such a way that all will know that we are Christ's disciples. Retreat is never an option. Everything, everything in this world, let's, let's open our eyes and, and notice everything in this world The world, the flesh, the devil, all of it together are wanting us to back off and shut up. Be quiet. Don't proclaim the gospel. Everything in God's word, the Holy Spirit himself, and the tremendous legacy we have in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ shouts to us, step forward and speak out. Doesn't it? Is there anything there that says, hey, back off? No. That's the world. That's Satan. That's your own flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but my flesh does not look forward to kissing any of you. (laughs) Okay? But am I willing to say no? Well, I do want to kiss that lady right there. (laughs) That's a holy kiss. Do you want to have one right now? No, I won't do that to you. But the point is that we we know that just the, the very essence of the Christian life is that we can't just back off and retreat. We have to step forward. And so whenever the culture outside the church rejects what the Bible clearly requires of us, it is the Christian's responsibility to push back and even to actually reform that culture. It is, uh, the story is that when Patrick, St. Patrick, went to Ireland, long, very complicated story, well worth reading, but one of the things that he did when he realized that in order to reach these Irish people, he couldn't just take everything away from them. Their culture was so riddled through with paganism and druidism that he couldn't just leave them with this big cultural vacuum and nothing. They had songs for everything. (laughs) They had a song for making breakfast. They had a song for cleaning the house. They had a song for tilling their soil. They had a song for harvesting They had another song for having babies or a song for nursing babies. They had a song for everything. So he set out on the project of writing new songs, Christian songs that honored God and that specifically related to each of these moments in their lives when they would be expecting to be singing a song. He also would set up alternative villages, often right across the river from a a Druid village. And as people would come to Christ, they would move across the river and become a part of the new Christian community. And over time, the Druid village would empty out. Even the Druids priests themselves would come to Christ and often go on to become elders within the new church because they were already respected as leaders of the community. And the result was that rather than just coming in and trying to knock over the old culture, he offered them a better way, a beautiful alternative culture 
that honored God and loved Christ and loved one another. That's what I mean when I say reforming the culture. We have to provide the world with a clear alternative to what they have. You know, in India, even to this day, widows are burned alive with their dead husbands. It's, it's considered to be their last expression of, of affection and love to their husbands to be willing to die this horrible death on the funeral pyre of their husband. Christian missionaries had to push back against that. They couldn't just let that go and say, oh, yeah, that's their culture. No, they said, this is sin, this is wrong. In Africa today, girls are still being mutilated at birth in a misguided attempt to keep them from ever being tempted. It's a horrible thing, and the Christian missionaries have to push back against that and say there's a better way. By the way, some people will say, well, what's the difference between that and circumcision? A lot. There's a lot of difference. Okay? It's not the same thing. We're not talking about removing genitals. So we have to push back. There's sometimes the culture is so riddled with sin that we have to put forward an alternative. You know, there's even one country where unwanted babies are just casually aborted as a, as a means of convenience, birth control. You have to push back. You have to provide an alternative culture so that those who are fleeing from that world have a place to go where there is a better way. Do you know the church was initially called the way? And there was a reason for that. It was a different way of life. Now, there's a cult out there that has commandeered that title, and it is a horrible cult, the Way International. And if you're listening out there, Way International, you are a cult. You're not Christianity. But Christians should not relinquish that term and say, well, they've got that one. We'll have to find some other name. No. We are the Way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And all, no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we have to fight to establish an alternative Christian culture that is so distinctively different and yet adorns the gospel that they can't speak evil against us as evildoers because everything we're doing really shouts wisdom and goodness and wholesomeness. And so our response in every case must be to openly live and to live out loud, to be providing the narrative. You know, some people hear the quote from St. Francis Assisi. Some people call him St. Francis the Sissy. But uh, St. Francis Assisi said, preach the gospel every chance you can and when you have to, use words. And people think, oh, that is so sweet. That... That is such a wonderful way to, for me to ever avoid having to be persecuted for Christ. All I have to do is just be a nice person and somehow they're going to all get saved. No, they're not. People come to Christ when they hear the truth of the gospel and repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. You don't get that done just by being nice. You have to deliver the mail. You have to 
tell them the truth. And so we are to live openly and out loud. Not just love one another, but love one another while explaining to others why we love one another. Explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it that way. We have to be our own... uh, Oh, I wish I could remember who that guy was. All those wonderful documentaries, animal documentaries where this guy's got this wonderful British voice and he's explaining how the birds are all interacting with one another and hovering over the swamp and so on. We have to be that guy. We have to be the uh, Morgan Friedman of our own documentaries, you know, where we're commenting on what we're doing. We're explaining what we're doing. The world will not understand what we're doing if we don't say anything. We have to live out loud. What is pleasing to God and to call all of our neighbors to repent of their sins and to believe slash obey what the Bible teaches. And when we do that, we will see what we see in the book of Acts, that the Lord will add day by day those who are coming to faith in Christ. Now in the same way, we must display a holy affection toward one another as God commands. Rather than abandon showing proper affection for one another, and let's be honest, out of fear of being mistaken for a homosexual couple, we must model the holy alternative that God intends. You know, in the times when I was growing up, if, if, if two women wanted to share an apartment together in order to save money, people thought that was great. Now people are afraid to do that because they assume it has to have something to do with sex. It doesn't. We need to not let our liberty be taken away because of the way that they abuse their liberty. We need to be able to say we're going to have a whole household of guys, a discipleship house, where all these young single guys who, for whatever reason, can't continue to live at home are going to be able to live together and disciple one another and encourage one another and hold one another accountable to walk in the light of God's word. We need houses like that for women as well. We need houses like that for the elderly as well. Because God intended us to love one another by meeting practical needs. And when we say, well, I I would do that, but I'm afraid of what people would think. Well, then you have just sacrificed your liberty on the altar of public acceptance. Deep affection toward our brothers and sisters in Christ should be constantly on display to a watching world so that all will know that we are Christ's disciples. By backing off from open expression and affection, we are contributing to the pandemic of loneliness that is settling upon the world now. After the pandemic, so many relationships were broken, and many of those relationships have not yet been restored. And there is a, as the uh, Surgeon General of the United States puts, a pandemic of loneliness. Do you realize what an opportunity it is for us to openly express our affection toward others in ways that let them know that they are, in fact, noticed and loved and welcomed and appreciated? Consider what is lost in a society where wholesome, loving affection is no longer on display while sexual immorality is on display everywhere. 
That's the world we live in right now. And the only way to fight back effectively is by obeying the word of God and being willing, if need be, to be persecuted and mocked, but still be faithful to Christ by openly displaying our love for one another in whatever ways you have liberty to do so. So who needs these open expressions of affection? We all do. Husbands, love your wives. What does that look like? How about hold hands in public? My Bonnie and I hold hands all the time. We walk all around Silverton. We get looks, don't we? People notice, oh, isn't that cute? As a father with his children... We need to show the world good examples of hugging and laughing together and walking, holding hands. Same thing goes for being brothers and sisters. Do not be ashamed to show your affection for one another. The world needs to see wholesome affection. As a mother with her baby, now I know I'm going to get on some thin ice here, but you know, I think it would, we got a whole generation out there that's not quite sure what all this anatomy is for. And uh, nursing modestly in public could be doing a lot of young ladies a great service for them to be reminded that, yes, you can feed your baby. You've got this amazing ability to feed your baby. I won't dwell on that. I'm a guy. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means we're leapfrogging over one another as we show our love for one another in ways that are clearly a display of our affection. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, I think this is supposed to be love your wives. Love your wives, or no, live with your wives. That's correct. You got it right, Peter. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now that's offensive to a lot of people. A lot of women think, I don't need somebody to honor me as the weaker vessel. Okay? Well, we're finding out now with a lot of these sports events that uh, there is such a thing (laughs) as a weaker vessel. And you're not quite up to what the men are able to do when they get the chance to compete against you. But I think this is a good uh, basis for us doing things like opening doors for the ladies in our lives. Of showing the kind of respect that says, oh, let me carry that. Let me get that for you. Let me climb up on that ladder rather than you. I can do it. I'm a woman, hear me roar as I'm lying on the floor. No, let's, let's take care of the ladies in our lives. We can participate in the display, the display of God's glorious alternative culture by holding hands in public, opening doors, hugging one another, And yes, even by saying hello and goodbye 
with a holy kiss. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you be glorified in this, that rather than creating disunity, Lord, it would draw us together. Help us to agree with one another that we will be more open to expressions of affection, both to give and to receive that affection. And Lord, may we be a church that shines like a city on a hill and that those who see what is happening here would be drawn not so much to us, but to the one who allows all these good things to be a part of our lives. Lord, may you be glorified in your church. And may we see souls saved because we were willing to overcome our fear of man. We ask it in Jesus' name.